Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s, except, as we've been doing a lot of late, taking more modern books that are set in the 60s or pre-60s history and exploring those. Today, we're going to be focusing on the incredible X-Men Origins Beast Number 1 by the wonderful Mike Carey and J.K. Woodward. We'll be talking about that issue in the last half of the podcast. But we get to focus on Beast when he was a nice guy, <laughs> before he became a war criminal. Uh, I am so thrilled to be, <laughs> I'm so thrilled to be joined uh, by a person that I've been a big fan of for a long time, and whom I got to meet at FlameCon, the incredible Danny Lore, as well as uh, uh, two guests who are some of my favorite co-hosts ever, uh, uh, the incredible Bob Quinn and the wonderful Arturo Rojas. Uh, welcome everybody, I'll have you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And uh, the question I have during introductions today is, what's something that you were exceptional at in high school? Uh, you can talk all about your high school self if you, <laughs> if you would like to. Uh, let's go to Danny first. Hi, Danny. How are you? Hey, uh, how you doing? Uh, I'm Danny Lore. Uh, mostly nowadays, I'm writing comics, um, although I do prose as well. Um, pretty much if it's sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Uh, it's kind of my bag. Um, pronouns are they, them. Um, in high school, I was really good at getting away with not doing any of my homework. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I mean, like, it was high school. It's really nice that it was very long ago. <laughs> we change a lot over time. That's, that's absolutely true. Uh, let's go to Bob next. Hi, Bob. Hey, that's your old pal Bob. Uh, pronouns he, him. Uh, I was, I don't know, I was not good at anything at high school other than drawing, probably, which, which is how I got to be where I am today. <laughs> there you go. You probably know me from drawing comic books, uh, Way of X, Knights of X, uh, Champions before that, bunch of stuff. But you know, I'm, I'm out here, I'm drawing. We got some champions conversations to have today for sure. Heck yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we'll be going on next to my friend Arturo. Hi, Arturo. Hola. Hi, I'm Arturo. I am humbled to be included in this panel today. Uh, big fan of, of both y'all's work. So thank you so much, Chad, for having me. Uh, usually you can catch me over at X's for Podcasts talking about comics. Or actually, I should say Marvel's Mutants, Magic, and More. It's <laughs> our tagline. Um, in high school, my, uh, my superpower might, or what I was exceptionally good at, of course, I turned it into a mutant power. The question in my head, uh, was reinventing myself, baby, like Madonna. Like I would like <laughs> each year, it was like a whole new me, um, from, you know, my punk phase to light goth emo phase. Uh, by my senior year, I could say I was exceptionally good at sneaking out of my parents' house and going to raves at about four in the morning and dancing till 2 p.m. Yeah. So you and I have had very different lives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad. I use he, him pronouns. You know me from this podcast. Uh, I uh, We're recording this the weekend after Thanksgiving, even though it's being released in mid-December. I was just at my mom's home for the holiday for a couple of days. And you know how you kind of, I don't know if you guys are like this, when you go back home, you kind of go back to your high school self for just a minute. Like, like your, your room feels the same, even though I'm in my forties with kids, there's like, there's like that old, like 
cloak that kind of descends upon you. I, I, I've been thinking a lot. I went to a school where my mascot was a potato. And <laughs> and the building, the high school shape of the building is designed to look like a, a cellar where potatoes are stored. They call it a spud cellar. It's, they, they literally, like to show school spirit, they designed it that way. Uh, it's a it's a very small town in Idaho. Anyway, uh, in high school, I was really good at some of the things I'm good at now, which is sensing people's feelings and, <laughs> and writing. I was uh, I was always really good at both of those things, and those are my two jobs professionally now. So there's a a common trend for all of us. Um, we're uh, we're asking that question because we're going to focus on high school beast today in just a little while, and uh, he was much more tolerable back then. <laughs> <laughs> less less war crimey. Yes, yes. Uh, so when I was at FlameCon, I was surprised and thrilled to meet Danny, and I probably occupied way too much of their time. I kept hanging out at their table. Not at all. Danny, hi, I'm Chad. It's nice to meet you. Let's talk about X-Men. And uh, we got really excited about the uh, the possibility of doing a show together, and I am so happy to have you here, my friend. How are you? How was your holiday? Uh, uh, my holiday was good. Um, my folks actually, my mom actually lives uh, fairly close to me, so we just decided. Um, we did Thanksgiving on Saturday because it was just easier. Um, and so I just got my leftovers. So it's great. Um, but yeah, just um, rest is always good. I highly recommend it as often as I don't get it. Um, and uh, I had a good time. How, how was your guys? Uh, for us, it was fine. We had a small gathering and then did a lot of family stuff. And then we had a huge snowstorm. It was nuts. Uh, it was like a foot of snow everywhere, like scraping it off the car. Like it's I'm like winter is here, man. <laughs> Mine was lovely. Uh, the big headline coming out of my uh, my my Thanksgiving was my brother-in-law smoked one turkey and fried two. So mm. Wow. Fried I turkey mean, is so good. He's he's been doing so it now dangerous, for like, so for, worth it. He's been doing it now for like a couple years. This might be like the third or fourth, and I swear to God, he just gets better and better at it every year. It's like exceptional. Bob, uh, how we we had we had a lovely Thanksgiving. Just my wife and I didn't do any traveling to go see anybody uh, because we like to be left alone. <laughs> she she brined the turkey which was delightful um and then uh let me think let's see what else happened nothing it was very quiet which is I mean, exactly that's the perfect thanksgiving exactly <laughs> it was yeah it was spectacular uh but as mentioned previously i did unfortunately have to work on it because uh you know when you're drawing these comic books you don't really get a ton of days off so I, it, unfortunately, that has taken all of my work, and because I wanted to actually spend some time, uh, you know, not I didn't want to spend the whole day working. It has now bled into the weekend. So I, instead of mm -hmm. having like a couple days of real intense work, it has been like a few days of like eh, not too bad work. <laughs> yeah, it was actually thing I'm most grateful for. I think this Thanksgiving it was it was one of the rare holidays that uh, I was able to arrange like an extra week or so for like my major deadlines so i could actually take like the full weekend and not do real work oh congratulations uh, to yeah. you very it envious <laughs> it literally never happens uh yeah. you know there's always something to catch up on but like it was great i was like i have like a reasonable amount of time with between deadlines and like waiting for art on things so i can i can just do this 
I, uh, my birthday was on Thanksgiving this year. That happens like every mm. seven or eight years. And the nice Happy birthday. Guys, thank you. My, my family did nice things for me, but, uh, Seth Martell, who's my friend that does a lot of art for the podcast. Often after I research characters for this show, just because I'll write stories about them. And after the toad trial we did months ago, I wrote a five page toad story and I only shared it with like four people. And for my birthday, Seth drew it for me. So oh, I, posted nice. it, I posted Aww. it to Twitter and Instagram. Go check it out if you have it. It's lovely. I'm actually super proud of it. And it's uh, it's incredible to see. Uh, it's something I haven't done in a while. I haven't written comic books in a few years. So it's cool. Super cool to see it uh, come to life a little bit. Um, so, Danny, you first came to my attention during. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I I tried to be hidden and subtle um stealth <laughs> is not is not where my stats are you're apologizing in advance <laughs> <laughs> um you first came to my attention with your uh your 2020 Ironheart series and then i got to follow you into doing other work most prominently uh well some of your work on the marvel voices stuff but most prominently into champions for me which was really exciting to see you do that work as we're beginning i would love to hear a little bit of your story about uh, kind of comics fan into comics professional, if you will. You grew up in uh, Harlem, if I'm remembering correctly? Uh, yeah, so Harlem, uh, teenage years, Harlem in the Bronx. Um, when I was much younger, I didn't, like, aside from my obsession with, like, the um, Sunday paper, because, like, my dad read the paper. So, obviously, if I read the comics, that meant I was doing the exact same thing, right? Like, that's that's how, like, a small child's brain works. Prince Valiant is exactly the same as reading the sports section. Uh, so, like, uh, but my dad also was, like, a comics fan. Like, I didn't read many comics growing up, but, like, the animated series. You know, I remember when I saw Blade in the theater. I saw Blade in the theater and because as a little kid, I wasn't paying attention to, like, opening screens. I didn't realize he was actually, like, a comic character for a couple of years. You know, I was just like, that's just the cool movie. Um, you know, like, and he was big on it. My mom less so, but that was more based in the fact that she was like, you read comics so quickly and it's so expensive and I don't want to do that <laughs> um, to kind of keep up with. Because like I, like reading was kind of my thing growing up, like that thing that like in general I was pretty good at. Um, but uh, so kind of from there, um, I one day was in the library way too young, like, 10 11 years old uh and i found the the books of magic ongoing series not even the neil gaiman trade but the original like just the or like the the stuff that came after the ongoing timothy hunter series and like for me as like a little kid like one i was too young to read it but it was also this thing where so aside from like the like comic strips, my first real exposure was that weird 80s and 90s stuff, right? Like yeah, that weird yeah. 80s and 90s, like British stuff that was like so different. Um, and like, so that was really just like a revelation of, oh my God, like, because even if you're into comics, like reading that series, you're like, oh, this is what comics can do. You know, like this is, this is different, right? Um and from there, I was obsessed. But uh, for a long time, there was there was not much reading of comics going on, primarily, again, money wise until like I was able to uh, we did a trip to like England in high school. Uh, and while I was very in many ways uh, socially awkward and off on my own, um, one of the really nice things that happened was I happened to find a comic shop, like really old school kind of comic shop 
the kind of place where I was like, I vaguely know of like the Phoenix saga. And I think I liked that. And they were like, these are the issues, you know, like I literally remember to date exactly that year is I remember I picked up uh, Ultimate X-Men number one because Storm was in that Nick's crop top. And that was like formative to me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, like that was an incredibly important moment in my life um you know but like so my mom's still kind of like weird about it but again it was mostly because she was like with like your reading level like why are you doing this and I was like because I love them um and then eventually I picked up like the gambit first appearance and it was like 20 bucks when I bought it or whatever it was not big but I was like see mom sometimes they are worth more money and she just accepted that uh, and then she never complained again. <laughs> so it was really great years later when I was like, by the way, remember how I always wanted to write? Apparently I'm writing comics now. Um, only last year did she realize that um, they get collected after they're in single issues. And I'm like, mom, I've had multiple collections at this point. That's fine. <laughs> I'll explain this to you as you go on. Um, I feel like when I first started collecting, my mom used to call my comic books like my funny books. Like, oh, you, yes. you're going to your funny book. Like, read your funny book. I'm like, this is a big deal. There's a whole industry. Well, my mom, like, even animated stuff only really cared about, like, the Jetsons. She did not care, like, about any of that stuff. Also, no one, no one can see this because, like, they're not watching us talk. But I believe I just saw Bob switch from Grado's to Audio Technica's. And I love you so dearly for that. <laughs> It's true. It's all true. That's um, literally what just happened. I literally recently picked up the Grado 325s and they're just like my babies. They're like my favorite headphones on the planet. They're um, so nice. Yeah, I had a nice pair of Audio Technicas, but my wife wanted stuff that looked pretty. And I had switched the ear pads to like be like have flowers on them. Mm -hmm. So she went. So I was like, this is pretty. And she's like, this is pretty. And I can't hear you when you babble on. And I was like, good compromise. <laughs> Yeah, because the, the Grados, are, they sound great, right? But they have yeah. those open backs. And I was like, I just want to make sure there's not any microphone bleed or anything from the podcast. So. <laughs> that was literally what I did right before we started recording. I was like automatically putting on my open backs. And I was like, oh, no, no. Everyone will hear everything four times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so I ended up after college. Uh, I always had this thing in my head where... I don't know who put this in my head, but I was like, if you write fiction, I had just accepted like no angst that you don't make money doing it. I don't know when this started or how. I just accepted that it was like, oh yeah, you know, I'll be probably writing prose or something, but like maybe after having a full career doing something else, uh, I'll be able to just quit that and do. But I like, I like came into it somehow being like, yeah, if you do writing, you will be broke. So you're supposed to have another career. So, like, I studied, like, forensic psychology in college, um, and then after, because I was like, well, that sounds like stuff that'll be useful for writing supervillains. Um, literally the reason that I picked uh, forensic psychology. Um, and then right after college, I needed a job, and I walked to every single, and it's weird, because it wasn't until college that I got, like, deep into comics, uh, like, uh, Roger's Time Machine, uh, downtown in New York, uh, it was kind of just this place that opened up, uh, like a different part of reality for me, you know, like I would just go in and they were just as much as they're an old school comic shop. And a lot of people, even myself, you know, had a lot of trepidation about that kind of environment. They were always really like open, <laughs> you know, like I could go in and be like, last week you recommended this Batman comic. I want to, and it was good. 
I want to read something X-Men and they would just hand me stuff, you know, like, and I would just take, and that's like kind of how I absorbed it. Like timelines be damned. Um, and so I just went everywhere in the city and was just handing my resume in. And I got really fortunate when I walked into Forbidden Planet because it turned out only about a week or two, uh, my future best friend, Vita Ayala, had gone back to college. And at the time, we look related now, but like, you know, that was, it was 10 years ago. We looked a lot more alike. Uh, we both had long curly hair. They hadn't shaved their head yet. I hadn't had locks. So I walk in and one of their best friends was the manager at the desk and bullied my future boss into giving me an interview that day, which anyone who's ever walked into Forbidden Planet with a resume knows that that just does not happen. And so I'm a thousand percent <laughs> like they they like you get put into a drawer and I'm like, this is literally because I look like Vita. I'm a thousand percent sure. Um, but I got the job a um, couple months later, met Vita. Uh, two weeks later, I was at their house for thanksgiving or no for christmas actually uh my dad picked me up from from uh their house for uh christmas and from then on i like i'd always been a fan of comics and i was always a writer but i was a prose writer before that i'm i still am but my brain never connected you can learn to do script and you can write like it was never the you know um you know money can be exchanged for goods kind of like connection in my head sure. until uh Vita and Matt Rosenberg, who we also worked with, um, were working in the industry. Um, and a lot of what I learned was just being quiet and they, or, or asking questions as they discussed them getting into it, right? Because it was like Matt was more into it first and then he brought Vita in. And so I was watching like different kinds of rises, I guess, career-wise, because they were always a couple of years before me at different stages. Um, and because Vita and I, I think Vita and I came up with the idea for our comic Quarter Killer, or not the idea, the the original joke that spawned Quarter Killer was that first time I stayed over at our house for Christmas. Like literally, like uh, just, oh, what if somebody, you know, was like a mercenary assassin and traded quarters for jobs because quarters are rare and they need an arcade, they need it for arcades, some nonsense like that, because <laughs> that was literally one of the, our first inside jokes. Um and from there, we just kind of, they taught me how to script in a lot of ways and then would drag me places like, okay, you're just going to be my plus one to this event. And, you know, like, I'm fully aware how very fortunate that is, but they also kicked my ass to make sure, like, they could do it because they knew I wouldn't embarrass them in person. And then both them and Matt Rosenberg kicked my ass to make sure I wouldn't embarrass them on the on the page, you know, like that, like I was able to come in with the, yeah, I want to be in this industry. Yeah, you guys like have met me. Also, like we're going to figure out how I'm going to get like a script out there that people can see, you know. Um, and that's how I met most of the people in the industry, you know, this combination of of Twitter and then just standing next to Vita while Vita's, you know, like at New York Comic Con, helping them run a table or something like that. And getting to meet like a lot of friends just across the board. It's so much about relationship building, but also you have to be great at what you do. Bob, I remember you sharing your story about like, I drew some characters on Twitter and then they're like, hey, those look pretty. <laughs> yeah, that, that's literally how I got in is I, I, I shared some stuff on Twitter and then I had uh, some people from Marvel in my DMs the next day and they were just like, Here's your email. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, like, cause there was, 
um, I met Adrian from Vault, uh, who they published my first book, Queen of Bad Dreams. And I met him literally because I was originally do- writing a short, which ended up still in the Good Fight anthology. Um, and he was helping the anthology and I was going to like co-edit, but it was right at the time that Vault was blowing up. So I ended up accidentally signing on to edit a bunch of people who <laughs> at the time were like ranging from people as new to the industry as me. And then also people like Rucka and Greenwood, you know, like, <laughs> uh, like where I'm like, oh, okay. You know, but that also meant that I learned how to talk to other people in the industry you know, in like a really kind of like high speed way. Right. Um, And then basically I was able to pitch at vault because that caused me to both at the start. And then when I needed advice, talk a lot about editing and editing philosophy with Adrian. So he knew how I thought about the creative process a lot. And that sort of thing. And so I kind of took the chance and just being like, you liked this tweet about me composing a pitch that I want to send to places. Is that secret Twitter code for, can I send it to you? <laughs> like, I literally remember calling Vita, like, um, the editor from Vault liked my tweet. Should I email him? And Vita was like, yes, just go do it. Like, worst that's going to happen is that he says no. And then you just ask somebody else. And I got really lucky that that was the time that I asked <laughs> that uh, someone said yes. So I've got about 20 questions I could ask, but I have three focused ones I want to make sure to get to right away. It feels okay. like your your first big work at Marvel, at least ongoing, was the Champions book, mm-hmm. where you got to tell a very modern teenage story with kind of killer apps going bad and robots called chaperones going after teenage superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> with a very robust cast of, of characters, including lots of our queer favorites, like Viv Vision, who we love, of course. Uh, what was it like to get that gig and to do that work? It's so wonderful. Very intimidating. Um, one of the things, I love everything we did. I also feel like perhaps for my first like arc, that was a very, it wasn't just that it was a team book, but it was also a very large team book, right? So like, there's a there's a big learning curve there. Um, I, I think that it's easy to visualize the ways in which for an artist that that would be a lot to sign on to, right? Uh, but also like writers often forget that that's also a lot that you have to learn, right? Because you already have to learn. For example, I had only done, I had either done, um, I had done the James Bond at that point Um, but that's still a very different story to learning how in a Marvel book to reintroduce characters for a new arc, you know, to new readers or to balance the characters, right? Um, learning how much story you can fit in when you're used to doing like, say two main characters at most for the rest of your work. And then suddenly being like, oh, by the way, now here's a five person team. Um, and also learning how to be considerate to the rest of the team, right? On a real level. Uh, even if you can figure out the writing balance, you also have to be considerate to the, you know, the artist, the colorist, um, the letterer and everything with what you're doing on the page. I'm a prose writer, means I, all of my baggage is in dialogue. Um, you know, so learning what to cut out and how to do it early enough, you know, in the story that you're not screwing everyone over. I was really blessed to be working with Luciano for that, which, um, Luciano is a great collaborator. 
we did a lot of work that was us being like us working together in in email you know like uh some of the combat was you know very kind of like a version of marvel style and then you know my favorite joke from the first issue actually i love talking about this was literally during that opening fight scene and there's a joke with miles that relates to the sound effect on the page and that literally came out of uh the blocking of that script of those those combat pages because i did not know how to balance you know panel to panel combat so luciano taught me a lot during that and being like just leave a panel for a joke, a bit of snark from Miles. I'll figure out what the joke is in context to the page when we get to get to right before lettering. Um, and he just is a king. Like he just, <laughs> you know, like, and we flowed a lot, just had so much great. We were able to go back and forth in conversation um, and a lot, which you don't always get to have time for. Um, when you're working at like Marvel and DC to have like those real in-depth conversations, you know, with your, with your collaborators, like, what do you want to be doing on the page? You know, uh, is this thing that I'm doing something you enjoy, or do you want me to pull back and work more like on the stealth or the fashion, you know, like the, the iconic ponytail look of Viv, which is like my favorite thing of that entire book, you know, is in part because I, we, I knew how much Luciano liked design. So I was like, let's just have a page where she's walking the dog because I know that he's going to come up with something, you know, unforgettable, <laughs> you know? And obviously he did. The high ponytail is a look. Luciano um, is an absolute sweetheart. Uh, it was such a pleasure. Yeah, he's, he's, he's wonderful. That idea of the monthly book as well. I mean, it is a whole damn education, but how much do you put on the page? You got to give every issue your all and plot it out far in advance, but also be uh, subject to editorial control and schedule changes. Uh, Bob, anything you want to talk about there? I know you've done a couple of cr pretty crazy series uh, in the last few years. Uh, I I don't know what to add here, man. It's a it's a slog. I gotta tell you, <laughs> especially on the art end. Like the, the team books are really, really, really tough. You know, it's like because you know you want to give all the different characters a moment to shine, and then like you know a lot of panels have to have a lot of people talking in them, and it you know making sure that everybody's character and is acting appropriately and all that stuff. It's it's just a lot to juggle. You know, J just from like where you stack characters in scenes to make sure that like it isn't completely confusing where everybody's standing mm -hmm. like it's a it's a it's a fun puzzle to put together and it has been my last geez two years i guess basically between way of x and knights of x yeah and champions it was it's been all team books it's, yeah it's uh, a lot <laughs> on, on behalf of a very specific fan base i just want to thank you bob for in the hierarchy of like trying to figure out the layouts and getting all these characters and making it work that you still found a way to get soft serve on the page. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Like you bust into the industry and you're like, all right, first things first, first things first. What if I do something gross and stupid? I mean, that's the <laughs> most fun stuff to do. Yeah. I feel like every, any time that I've co-written with Vita, the thing that people end up loving the most is the thing that literally was created because the two of us at some point, one of us went, okay, this is a really dumb idea. And like, we should do it. And we just went, no, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. Like the joke from our Ironheart 2020, the forgot about Dre was actually from lettering <laughs> pass 
because we looked at the page and when it feels like there's an empty space there, we need to, uh, like, if there's something we can do, like, to fill, because it looks like there's a gap that's supposed to be dialogue. Um, and I think it was Vita just goes, oh, man, we forgot about Dre. And I went, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, no, they're totally going to cut it. And the only note we got was, well, because the reference and the name and the, and Andre's name, only one of them has an accent. So do you want this with accent or without? And we were just like, that was the only note we got on that joke. Um, but yeah, balance is really hard. Um, and I think that the closer the whole team works together, the easier that is to kind of accomplish. Because sometimes, you know, just because of speed or because of language barriers, you know, like, uh, you don't always have direct communication with your team as much as you would like, or you don't have time, you know, if you're in completely different time zones, um, sometimes, even if you guys have an open like email conversation, sometimes there's not time to, you know, like wait for the other person to respond, right? Um, but so it's really nice, like, say, whenever I've worked with Luciano, and like, we just have like that good fun of like, sending each other stuff while we're working, you know? Um or my favorite thing that happened in the second to last issue of Champions, um, because I will talk about his brilliance at length all the time, um, is there's the big protest scene, right? And I'd written the script, but like pacing wise, it just wasn't hitting. And so Alana, uh, our editor goes, I'm just gonna leave you guys to it over the weekend and email and you guys, I'm sure you guys will figure something out. And so he very excitedly, sends me pictures where he printed out all like all, all the pages for that scene, cut out every panel, did not alter anything in the panels, but taped them back together in a completely rearranged order for multiple pages. Incredible. And it, I was like, you fixed it. You fixed everything I can't fix because for some reason I write comics and my visual pacing you know, like I was, I was new and I'm always learning something. I feel like if I'm not learning something while doing a project, I'm probably doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> like I'm probably rushing or I'm probably not giving it the attention it deserves. So I love working in comics because since you're working with collaborators, you're always going to learn something, you know, you uh, can't stay in your own head. Two of the questions I'm not going to take time to ask, but we could spend a long time talking about. You got to do some incredible work with the characters Venom and Taku, uh, uh, who are really two, one of my. I'm still so honored to have gotten to do that. Honestly, two I can't queer, believe two queer Wakandan characters who were always hinted to be gay. And in a recent uh, issue of Marvel Voices Pride, you got to explore their queer relationship, and it's wonderful. Uh, you also uh, get to do a lot of really incredible work with the character Blade, uh, which is weirdly the character you've kind of been most attached to. You've written Blade in Marvel Voices Legacy. and you've I cannot believe you just said those words to me. Like, I want to go back in time, like even like two years ago and be like, someone's going to say those words to you. And I'll be like, why are you my clone and why are you in my house? But mostly, <laughs> like... <laughs> Blade defined cool for me as a kid, right? Like, just to this day, you know? Like, like I was saying, I didn't know he was a Marvel character. I just thought, or like, and then when I did know he was a Marvel character, for some reason, it never, my small little child brain and, like, logical connections were never friends. Um, so I was like, yeah, he's a Marvel character. It did not occur there was comics. I was just like, he's just the cool dude. He's just so cool. 
he just does cool things. I was obsessed with, you know, Deacon Frost, like, and then to even once get to write him was such a wild honor, let alone like creating family members. I, I legit. Well, that's times that I, that (laughs) I like my next question, because you also got to write him in death of Dr. Strange blade number one, which is wonderful, but you are now launching uh, the series bloodline which is all about the daughter of Blade. That's my next question. Tell me about this new work you get to do because it's a big deal. I'm super excited. Uh, I mean, I'm still speechless thinking about it a lot of times because like I said, Blade is so important for me. Like those Sunday matinees with my dad and seeing those mo- like movies like that, like that, the X-Men, still remembering my dad's. My favorite character in X-Men, Holly. Never Storm. Just a heavy sigh and saying Holly Berry. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> my father was as big of a dork as me. But like to be asked to create his daughter was such an honor, not just because it's it's an honor period to be asked to like create, actively create a character for the Marvel Universe, right? Like and I, and I don't mean that in like this weird, like worshipy sort of way, just like to be trusted with that is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I feel that way about any time I'm, I'm offered the chance to work in anybody's, you know, universe. Like that's just, that's just a cool moment. Right. Um, but then with Brielle in particular, it was this chance to look at the landscape of the teens we have right now, you know, like, especially post champions where I got to think about those dynamics a lot. Um, and then go, there's this, there's this type of girl that I grew up with, that I grew up around, you know, that still exists, you know, in those great, you know, black alt goth girl scene, you know, like TikTok videos, you know, like, uh, (laughs) where they get to really have that, like, black girl and goth joy like simultaneously um and i was like we don't have that right now you know um so let's make it happen um and everybody was really on board for that you know seeing exactly how uh that that kind of played out um just getting to write this girl that is loud and protective of people around her but those aren't like that's her strength you know you know, even before powers kick in is that she is that girl and she looks like some of my friends, my cousins, you know, looks like my sister, you know, like that, that was all very important to me. Um, Representation is a big deal, which is something I say on this podcast over and over, but it's a really big deal. You know, and then also when we were thinking of kind of like where she was going to live, you know, like looking outside of New York, um, Atlanta just seemed like a perfect place for Blade's daughter. You know, this kind of city that's at this, this crossroads of like this great modern city with like the best food, but also like this, this supernatural magical history behind it, you know, like with, you know, um, with folklore, with superstition, um, you know, like, because already, you know, like, Nola had, like, Strange Academy, but I was like, no, let's, like, put her in this city that is that that centerpiece, you know? Like, I feel like that crossroads is so perfect for a legacy character in particular. 
a character that, you know, has these elements of this classic legacy, but is also very much her own new modern character. Uh, well, so that's I, been really super fun. And also getting my friends who live in live in uh, Atlanta <laughs> to send me pictures of places and confirm that like, cool, I like this location. Can you please confirm to me that it still exists? Or if it doesn't exist, how long has it not existed? Every Marvel book is in New York, except once in a while they're like, let's put someone in Philly or San Francisco or LA on occasion, right? I, I don't, I can't think of a single book based in Atlanta in the Marvel universe, which is actually all by itself already a big deal. I mean, I still have, you know, I've spoken both publicly and privately about this. I still maintain that, uh, I, I, I give me the Bronx. There are no books in the Bronx. Give it, give me the Bronx. <laughs> There isn't. Bob's going to think about it now. But like there, there's it hasn't been since New Warriors, uh, not New Warriors, but. um, Oh, what is is it? It's not New Warriors. It's Warrior something. Bronx, New York. I'll Marvel Comics. And I'm thinking about it. Talking. Yeah, I can't think of one. Jeez. Yeah, there hasn't been one since um, like the old school Warriors stuff. Um that like some people have shown up occasionally but there's actually nothing over there um and so that's why a lot of times you'll see when i do shorts and minis for characters that would be in new york like i grew up in harlem uh and in high school when my parents split my dad moved to the bronx so both of those places are, are really important to me um and so that's why you'll see a lot in my shorts that i will slowly inch people more and more uptown um, <laughs> you know, uh, if they're in Manhattan, uh, and there's no reason they have to be in downtown, they'll probably be uptown, that kind of thing. Um, now I know Arturo is going to want to chime in on this one, but Dana, you got to write a recent issue of the new mutants in which we got a shirtless Dokken fighting a shirtless warpath. <laughs> and it was from one gay boy to another <laughs> Arturo and I would like to thank you personally. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I didn't think they were going to let me have Dakin. And then when they did, I was like, well, they're going to be shirtless. Like that was my first, uh, like, I think literally the first thing that I said about that pitch and that script was that it's, they're getting their shirts. They're going to be shirtless for at least a couple pages. After a certain point, I know if they're like doing an actual mission, they should probably put clothes on. I tried mentally to justify them still being shirtless, but it didn't fully work blow something um, up blow their shirts off that's a that's a classic <laughs> listen i'll just do a double page spread of just just their beautiful chests it would be very important to me <laughs> but also it was fun because like a lot of the pros that i work on for myself is much closer i think to the new mutants uh uh issue than maybe a lot of my other stuff in that it tends to be um angry, muscly dudes fighting and then realizing they're punching each other because they have emotions that they don't want to talk about. Uh, that's kind of like my writing brand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like anyone who's known me for many years, like uh, they're like, yeah, no, that's what all of all of your prose is about. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so getting getting to do that was such an honor. And I mean, obviously, I'm a little biased, but even if I wasn't biased, um, I mean, Vita and, and Robbie just made me cry so many times during that arc. <laughs> uh, that that was such a beautiful arc. Um, and it was really kind of dope to just be able to play a little bit with that 
with that one piece that uh, was was still kind of out there to deal with, like, you know, uh, dealing with um, that kind of guilt in that moment, because that wasn't, you know, like a major point. It wasn't even like a hanging point because like you didn't need to have it, but it was nice to still play in that space. Um, and also come up with a way to have the world's most outrageous excuses for changing environments in a single issue. It was so fun and and such a good follow-up to Vita's incredible, incredible legendary arc on New Mutants. And we're so excited. Legendary. We're legendary. so excited about what Charlie Jane is doing now. Uh, it's It's been such a good time to be a New Mutants fan. I'm so thrilled to see. And Charlie is such a sweetheart. I've, I've only gotten to meet her like once. It was actually funny before I was in comics, I was, you know, when I was working at the shop during New York Comic Con, Charlie Charlie Jane came in and I'm like, I love your novels. You're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um you know and we just had a moment of being like we're inc incredibly queer nerds in a comic shop that rocks um so it's really cool to see charlie kind of take on charlie jane take on the mantle afterwards um having it's like all the birds in the sky if you have not read that book it's freaking amazing and wild just the whole conceit of basically the two protagonists of two different genre books crossing paths is essentially like the the conceit base conceit of that uh novel and it's really really good um bob i wanted to commend you very quickly i recently read a reread knights of x and i think it's the final issue there's this giant double page spread where it's like the big action finish and they're fighting all these creatures from the entire army it's something that probably could have taken 20 pages but you did it in two and like the Krakoan mutants are coming through the gate and it's the whole cast of Knights of X and everyone fighting. And they're all about these little big <laughs> yeah. characters because there's so much packed in. And I was like, God damn it. Well done, sir. Well done. Yeah, you do that so again, incredibly well. Thought like... service in there too. Thought yes, made it that, that, that is the well. one place she appeared. Yeah, so basically what happened there was we thought Knights of X was going to be a longer running series. And what happened was is we got the word of like hey this is ending at five so we were like well here's what we were going to do with the rest of the series so then we just threw it all into two pages and uh yeah it's the uh it's actually the only piece of original art that uh exists for that whole run so that double page spread is sitting in a file back there somewhere huh. with all those little tiny people on it it's one of the things i really love about looking uh at your work is how much you can pack in and still be incredibly coherent because I think that that's a thing that like I look and I'm like I can I can follow what's what's here right like I can follow what's going on <laughs> um and that sounds really generalized but like it's not like there are some people who just have that skill in particular like you give like, attention to every part of the panel there's no just like and then over here I'll just like you know, roughly sketch some heads or, you know, fighting or whatever. It's like, no, there's, there's uh, a deliberate stroke for everything on the page. Well, yeah, you, I, I you really keep, appreciate you keep, it. Yeah. You keep the sequential storytelling up even in the background, you know, like, and it's, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I can look at like the details of a page and like, all the details i'm like i can follow what's going on um and like kind of lose yourself in those pages and it's very cool well i really appreciate it thank you very much uh 
I, I don't talk to many people uh, outside of a little bit on Twitter, and most people say, "Hey, I really like that," and then like to hear, "Hey, this is the thing that I means a lot." Thank you. <laughs> it's so weird. Like that was a thing that for me, like, because pretty much aside from like Queen of Bad Dreams, like everything of mine has come out during COVID. So like. Mm doing comics is already this weird thing where you're doing all this work and you're not necessarily always engaging with the people who are reading, but oh, like yeah. even triply so because there were so like, it wasn't doing conventions or anything. So it's like, I came, came into COVID being like, Oh God, no one's going to remember who I am because like literally book comes out pencils down. Right. Like yeah, to yeah. like coming out and people being like, I love your work. And it's been a, a process for me to stop saying when people when I, I read your work, I, I had to train myself to stop saying how because I've never been in, <laughs> I've never been in a like I worked at a comic shop. But aside from like my first couple of, you know, like one offs, I never saw my stuff out there. Right. Yeah. Like I never I never engaged it in that way. And so my brain still goes, who knows how people see books? <laughs> No, I, I have this. I have the same situation a lot. Where it, it took me a long time to learn how to graciously say thank you to people. Like mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand it. I was like, "Why do you? Why do you like anything I'm drawing? It's garbage." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, it's 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 a weird phenomenon to suddenly figure out that, like, you know, all the people that you looked up to, you're doing the same thing, and then like you are in some way or another actually connecting with people in the way that you connected with the stuff that you grew up enjoying. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a learning curve on like how to, how to accept that compliment and understand that it is actually happening, you know? Yes. Like it, that it's, it's that it's, it's not pretend. Like, yeah, it's, exactly. It's easy to feel like it's pretend. Yeah, exactly. But that's, but that's been the tough part though, is cause like, I still don't do conventions cause like, I feel like the, the, uh, they're getting less and less safe as we sort of collectively seem to ignore what's really happening around us. <laughs> So I'm just kind of like, you know what? I'm good. I'll just stick to whatever social media platform is not blowing up at whatever week it is that people are reading my book. So I don't know. It sucks. So with that, I think we're going to take time to transition into our issue review. We could all talk for hours and we're all big fans of each other. And there's so much uh, charisma in this room right now, as well as good looks, of course. I mean, just look at the four of us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But uh, I... I wanted to say really quickly, when I went to FlameCon, uh, I was expecting to meet a lot of people. When I got I got to meet Luciano and see some friends of mine like Terry Blast, et cetera. But when I was I was walking down one row and I was like, oh my God, it's Danny Lure. Oh my God, it's it's uh it's Nadia Shamas. Oh my god, there's Amy Reader. Like there were so many more people than, than I expected. And I got to strike up all these incredible conversations. Uh, so Danny, just thank you for your graciousness and taking time to talk and come on the show. I really am a huge fan. It's wonderful to get to know you better. Thank you. And then just because of the soft serve of, of it all, I've been doing character-focused uh, Patreon episodes. What a sentence. Mar Marcus Onasso <laughs> and I did an episode uh, about Obnoxio the Clown in which we got to talk to the uh, about the other ice cream mutant uh, from Obnoxio the Clown versus- What the another sentence. One. His name is I Ice Cream. Ice Cream, yep. He turns into ice cream and he's yes, never he appeared ever again. He wears he black leather. He wears black leather and turns into ice cream. And so we need an ice cream revival. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, he 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 was like an assassin, right? And he could like he melts into ice cream and then could like sneak in places or something. He had he had a special freezer unit on his suit so that he wouldn't. Yeah. Melt. And he he melted <laughs> under the door and then broke into the danger room. It's it's a terrible story. It's terrible. <laughs> See, some people are like, you know, these are the disaster stories of comics. I'm like, that's why comics are amazing. Because yeah. like, here's the thing: like that can be a terrible story, but something about comics when you read it it's that puzzle piece still fits right and how often like you're like even the worst stories there's something about especially like superhero comics where you read that and you're like that's completely outrageous like you know they've been doing from the start what like my favorite video game series is uh one of them is the yakuza series um absolutely phenomenal primarily because it takes itself as seriously as it doesn't take itself seriously so you'll have like this tear worthy scene followed up by, you know, playing bowling for five hours so you can get like a rooster to manage <laughs> your uh, your retail uh, shops so that you can make money and level up. But both of them are like basically treated exact same tone, right? Like, and it works because it just commits to that. And I think that that's one of the reasons why superhero stuff has always appealed to me because even the weirdest sometimes worst ideas you're like you're committing to it let's go in a way that you can't always commit to those same sorts of ideas if it's just prose right i love That's why comics are the greatest storytelling medium on the planet you can just yes. kind of you you can do wild stuff and you just kind of go yeah all right yeah and, just and like, i accept a, this and there's a thing about like the, the the stories that sometimes can be like the worst when they're happening when you go back and read them, like the fact that yes. it came out, it makes it somehow like more iconic. Like, you know, off the top of my head, uh, she lies with angels. Like the fact that that saw print that like Ma Guthrie watched page and angel in the sky, like is insane. And it was not pleasant when it happened, but then you look back and you're like, Whoa, that was a piece of Marvel history. Literally. Like that happened. That was real. That happened. Yeah. We can, you, we can move past it, but it happened. If you haven't heard it yet, I interviewed Chuck Austin, uh, Arturo, and we talk about that scene, and he describes it as it's just meant to be a comedy. They're flying through the sky, and pieces of clothing are falling off, and you're like, oh, man, mom's down there, ha-ha. But it's had so much more <laughs> attention. Yeah, no, of course people <laughs> took it from, like, fooling around in the sky to, like... Clearing third base and... As the former Marvel handbooks writer, the obscure stuff, the ice cream stuff of it all is my favorite. I love picking up those corners, those little teeny edges of the puzzle and putting them all together. Okay, so with that, we're going to transition. Wait, into wait, I have I have one oh, question for, oh, yes. for Danny Lord before we yeah. uh, before we move on. Are you a Soldier 76 main? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, okay, so in <laughs> so honestly, in spirit, I'm a Soldier 76 main. Okay. Um, but really uh i tend to do healer and tank because i have no patience for mm. waiting to play dps so he's my favorite but really uh i'm a lucio main <laughs> oh very nice uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. simply because um i don't have uh patience to wait 10 minutes to play dps so i just sit there <laughs> and i let all my um all my roll tickets line up and then i just spend a day playing <laughs> soldier yeah. like i just don't pay anybody else um I almost, even though I'm in my own house, uh, matched my 76 shirt with my uh, dad's 76 hat that I got at a, I think it was a flame <laughs> con, actually. Um, 
because I care way too much about that dumb character. I love it. I the day that it became canon that like he was queer, I was just screaming everywhere that I was right. I was right. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) I was right the whole time. And my friends were just like literally messaging me like, I can't believe you were right. I can't believe that it was Soldier. And I was like, I was right. I told (laughs) y'all. Okay, so today we are going to be reviewing X-Men Origins Beast number one from November 2008. This is an incredible book written by Mike Carey, who uh, has a long run on X-Men in the 2000s, who worked on the X-Men Volume 2 title uh, beginning in 188 for quite some time. Uh, who wrote X-Men Legacy with like the Professor X Rogue stuff. He also did a ton of events that manifest destiny, divided we stand, secret invasion, second coming, age of X. Uh, we, uh, we have pencils, inks, and colors all done by the same artist, J.K. Woodward, and it's gorgeous. It's a little Alex Rossi, but kind of unique. Uh, this is the only work J.K. Woodward has ever done for Marvel is this particular issue. Uh, the letter on this issue is Russ Wooten, who uh, is, has done like 550 letter books for Marvel through the 2000s. And then the editor is uh, Nick Lowe, who, of course, is a longtime editor on Spider-Man and X-Men, etc. Uh, in the 60s books, we've gone through all of these books on the podcast already. For a long time, they had five page backup features. And for all of the male characters, Jean Grey only got one issue. All of the male characters had five, four or five issues devoted to them in the backups where we got to see their origin stories, where they came from, how they became mutants. So in X-Men 49 through 52, which ran in the, uh, the the late 60s, written by Arnold Drake and drawn by Werner Roth, we get to see the stories about how Beast's dad works in a nuclear plant. One day he's uh, assembling some nuclear rods and exposes himself to radiation. And eventually his uh, he, is, uh, he and his wife, Edna, uh, have a baby who is born with big old hands and big old feet and is uh, kind of naturally a mutant right from the beginning. There's some great images of him punching people in the face as a baby and like jumping around as a five-year-old. Uh, he eventually goes on to play football in high school where he comes to some national attention and a supervillain called the Conquistador. And that's how I'll say it every time today. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm a thousand percent sure that's how he says it. <laughs> fun, fun fact, the Conquistador could have been my high school mascot. Um, I went to a school called Columbus and our mascot was the Explorer who had the same hat as the Conquistador. You I'm guys all say. have either intensely better or intensely worse high school mascots than me mine mine's was pretty bad um okay. i went to See, an that's all-girls so bad school. it comes back around to being cool i went to an like, all-girls school for high school and i'm not making this up our mascot was a beaver oh god <laughs> beavers are awesome wow. it's know. also <laughs> slang for certain female body parts oh yeah <laughs> like, i was just it was just like a cool animal I mean, oh. the possibilities for like the cheers are. I mean, there was another the school charts. whose mascot like, was a wheel, and I'm like, "What is that? That's like that's not even funny. Bad. That's just weird." Meanwhile, we're wheel? all like, "We don't, we don't want to talk about our school mascot. That's fine." There, <laughs> there's a town in Utah called Beaver. It's very small, and at the gas station, there's all these like Beaver shirts, and they're meant to be funny, like I heart Beaver, and you're like, "Ha ha!" Uh, now, now, Bob, I gotta know what your high school mascot was. So um, I grew up in a very small town in Wisconsin, Uh, Wisconsin. Every city is named after some sort of Native American word. So obviously we were the Blackhawks, which had like a little Native American guy 
And then once that became a thing that you don't do in like the 80s, 90s, when people suddenly realized, hey, maybe that maybe we shouldn't have the guy with the big nose and the headdress all the time because that's sort of gross. Um, they changed it to just a black hawk, which is a bird. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So okay, okay. Uh, so jumping back. But I, wait, I have I have my I'm going to tell a story that's too personal now. Um my uh when i was when my mother was pregnant with me uh their gyno obgyn guy was dr beaver so there we go oh, wow. <laughs> oh, oh no <laughs> it's just beaver all the way down you just had you just didn't have a choice name yeah exactly yeah. at that point i think that's what my mom said she's like well we gotta go with this guy <laughs> oh my <laughs> okay okay so the conquistador is introduced he kidnaps beast parents he makes him steal a nuclear reactor and then he gets his ass kicked and beast joins the x-men that's the story that's told in the 60s this is never really talked about ever in the comics again until 1997 there's an issue called uncanny origins number six by mike higgins and dave hoover which then retells the origin of the beast. Beast parents show up throughout the years a couple of times. There will come a day when I do a Patreon episode about the McCoy family. We'll get there. I love his mother in particular. I think they're great characters. Uh, but this is the first time, especially for people in modern continuity back in 2008, where we're seeing this story kind of revisited. We're seeing Mike Carey add in some details, make things make a little bit more sense and frankly, a little bit less racist in some weird ways. Uh, but we're going to talk about this issue in this origin story today. Uh, for my guests, before we jump in today, uh, were you familiar with this story, this origin of the beast before reading this issue? So no, no, it I turns out I'd forgotten that I read this. I read all of them when they were coming out. Because this was, was this the same series or the sequel series to the Emma one? Uh, I want to say that this was the same one, same run. I think it was the same one. There was like nine or ten different X-Men origin yep. books. Yeah. Uh, but also I was a giant Mike Carey nerd. Because I am one of the weirdos who read Lucifer before Sandman. Yes! Lucifer! So I'm obsessed with, with that book. Um... So anytime I saw Mike Carey's name on anything, I basically grabbed it. Um, and so like I had completely forgotten. And then I opened, it, I was like, oh no, I read, I read, I read this. Like um, it was very interesting to come back to, especially post having read a lot more um uh like varied Superman origins, because I think that there's a lot of connections to Clark in the way that this story is told. Um and so it was it was very interesting. But I was like, oh, my gosh, I remember all of this because I remember just jumping at Emma's <laughs> origin. So on the this, was my, this was my first time and I wasn't sure, like just in reading it, I wasn't sure if this was a retelling of an old story or if this was like Mike Carey making up a story to like fill in the gaps. And I'm happy to hear it was a retelling of something because I was perplexed by some of the choices but uh <laughs> it being like a retreading and kind of like trying to you know fix what might have been bad then it makes yeah. a lot more sense to me now sure than sure. the whole plot <laughs> so i'm gonna cover the start very quickly uh so we have a cover where we see the five male x-men professor x cyclops angel beast Iceman, kind of floating in the back well not floating they're like visages in the background with beast as a football player kind of careening across he's got his 
fist uh, as he's like pounding forward, his giant like ham-sized feet are propelling in the air and uh, he is he is rushing across. This is like football star Beast. Now Beast, we're going to learn uh, in some of these earlier stories, he was often teased as a kid because he was always very strong. The kids on the playground would call him Beast. When he joins the football team, they call him a Beast on the football field. So this is where he gets his code name from, even though he later turned himself blue and furry. A lot of people weirdly are surprised that he was never not blue and furry. They, like, I think they assume he looked like that all the way through, but that's something he did to himself I've, in the 70s. I've always been obsessed with the with the fact that he was like, a mutant first and then got mutinary like the fact that the blue furry part is actually not like the thing that got him there was like the second i was like oh okay so like i mean i i've thought for a million years about the whole like defensive owning of like queerness in terms of like beast's presentation you know, being like, I can't hide this. So then the story just making it even more and bigger. Um, sorry, I almost studied uh, my my minor in, in college might have been um, literature, but like comics lit. So I, um, I, I overanalyze wait. everything. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. I overanalyze things too. And I think it's brilliant. The, the comparisons you're drawing. Uh, no, so don't apologize for one second. <laughs> I feel like reread re or reading this has made me realize like we are long overdue. Meanwhile, while Beast is being a blue furry war criminal, we are overdue for a new mutant with huge feet and hands. I I don't I don't Please. know if the girls can handle that. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we will name him the Beaver, <laughs> <laughs> and we will name him Extra. Um, I will love him. Ham-fisted. <laughs> so as we open this book, Beast is in high school. He is doodling superheroes on his page. He's drawing Spider-Man's webs, Human Torch's head, Thor's hammer, and he's recounting all the recent news. Uh, we see images of Spider-Man fighting the Sandman. We see uh, Thor descending with lightning above him. We see the Fantastic Four fighting Doctor Doom. And he's recounting how there is this new era of kind of Marvel comics as the teacher is lecturing in the background about things that are going on in the world around them. Uh, Beast gets a test return to him where he gets a B plus on it. Uh, Mr. Powell, his teacher, is kind of saying, you're a little bit better than this. And they're using some big bio, some big science stuff. Uh, he's like, you're fine until you hit the genetics question, Mendelian distribution of inherited traits, uh, which is funny because Beast has this big science brain. The local high school bully is over there. He's making fun of Beast. Like, maybe you're released from the Bronx Zoo. And this guy, his name is Steckler, has a D minus on his test, which is funny. The teacher's super sassy. He's teasing some kids who got, like, bad grades. And he's like, gentlemen, just look at the pictures next time. And then Beast has a girl next to him named Jennifer Niles. This is her first appearance. Uh, we see a couple different girls associated with Beast in his early origins. This is one of them. And Jennifer's, uh, Jennifer's kind of accusing him of dumbing himself down, which is, uh, Danny, the queer analysis, we make ourselves less queer. He's making himself a little less smart. He wants to blend in or fit in a little bit more. He tells her the story about the time his dad was in that accident in the plant. This was in an era when Arnold Drake was telling the Beast origin story where they seem to see want to give people a reason for having a mutation. So this uh, this idea of Beast's dad being exposed to nuclear radiation is part of the reason maybe he was born, quote unquote, deformed in the womb, even though he's not deformed, he's natural just the way he is, of course. Uh, we see an image of him being 
born in his, his mother's arms. And then Beast and uh, Jennifer go walking outside. And uh, when they are there, they are walking across the football field where the coach is screaming at the players. He's calling them meatloafs. He's saying they've got all kinds of problems. The local bullies are back out there. And in order to prove a point to them, he's like, hey, you, McCoy, why don't you try tossing this ball? Let's see what you're capable of. So that's kind of our intro to this story. We're seeing Hank McCoy as the big, beefy science nerd. Uh, he's trying to blend in and fit in. He's in a small town with a lot of small minds, uh, but he wants to be important. You can kind of see that right under his skin. Uh, this is right before the era where he starts using giant words and like not hiding who he is at all. Uh, any thoughts on this kind of opening section of the book? I mean, um, yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's very for me set up like um, the like the thesis is playing a little bit with like the the very specific like Clark Kent uh, backstory and opening, right? But that it's you know plus the super genius thing, you know, um, reminds me a little bit of, I think after this, the, um, what is it? The Superman earth one, uh, in the sure, beginning yeah. where he goes to the city and he tries and he tries and is very good at literally every possible job. <laughs> um, and then like, it's the reason why he chooses to don a cape instead of other, instead of everything else. Right. Um, I was a little surprised that the teacher doesn't play more of a role later on, if only because having the teacher speak up for and support him and then not being there doesn't, it's not what I expected. Um, it goes a little red hoodie after that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob, what were you going to say? Oh, uh, no, no, nothing. The, the, what I what I will say will come during my pages. <laughs> well, you go right ahead. Take the next oh, section for us. Tell us what happens. <laughs> so, so um, you know, the 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 coach of the football team makes a comment that he could probably find some better performers on the football field in the local library. And of course, this is the moment that our super genius Hank McCoy walks by and is given a football and said, "Hey, go kick that football. Uh, let's see if we can get it between the uprights." Hank, of course, does so, but doesn't think about the way, like, you know, the normal kids would do it. So he kicks it to the very, very far end of the football field and twangs it, I think is the tw thwangs it, there we go, uh, straight off of the uprights, uh, thereby in uh, very much impressing the high school football uh, coach and says, hey, you can have any uh, position on the team that you want, at which point. Steckler, the big uh, the big bully, is giving him a hard time, and uh, this incenses Mr. McCoy, and he says, you know what? What position does Steckler play? I'll do that, which is pretty great. Um, but I this love is, him for it. I know. It's <laughs> great, right? But now this is the point of the story here where it goes, nice going, Mr. Normal, says Jen, and he says, well, it's just high school football. This is the first point in the story where I realized that he was supposed to be a high school student because he looks like he's 50. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this this is a grad student somewhere, right? Like this is grad graduate studies at, at college. No, <laughs> this is a this. So you know, anyway. Uh, so uh, he they um he he we 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 cut now uh, on our very next page to him absolutely destroying these turkeys on the football field. This guy's huge. He can't be tackled. He can't be stopped. He's the beast. You know what I'm saying? And then uh, it turns out that he's been so incredible at football that 
the high school boys are going to state. And it's all on the back of Mr. Hank McCoy. Oi, oi, Hank McCoy. They they cry to the heavens. In the um, original and- in the original Arnold Drake story, they add a story where there's some guys trying to rob the football game and Beast uses his like... Rob the- the- Rob yeah. the football game. Yeah, they're like they're like robbing. There's some guys that show up at the high school football game to commit a robbery, and Beast like kicks of their what? asses <laughs> from the like concession the stand. They can like the, the money for the admissions. I don't know, uh, but Beast kicks which their they carry asses. with them on the field. Yeah, so it's probably like 80, 90 bucks. What's wrong with you guys? Beast kicks their asses, and it's on national news, and that's why the conquistador is like, I've got to get him. He needs to work for me. So uh, we're we're propelling him into fame without this unfortunate uh, guys robbing robbing the. <laughs> this is one of the no. one of the changes Mike Carey made. Man, I truly this early part in particular, like before the conquistador shows up, really made me wish that this was like at least three issues. Because like I really I'm terrible at sports, but what I do love is a sports movie deeply to my mm. soul. And the thing that interests me about a sports story, especially a football story, is the fact that that one guy can't can't propel them to the championships unless he gets the team support behind him, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they're not working as a team, then like that falls apart, right? Like he can be the best at it, but there are rules. <laughs> like you can't do everything. You need to be able to communicate with your team and that was one of those places that I was like, gosh, darn this, like the one, like the one shot constraint here, because that would be such great, like foreshadowing for him with the X-Men. Right. Yeah. There's a lot Uh, like playing it that he learns to be an X-Men because he played football, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I was just sitting there like, it's right there. Um, It's funny that you say, uh, football movies because like the art really sings in this part like it's giving varsity blues like Mm -hmm. you can you can hear these panels like it's it's great and i just want to touch on the queer mutant metaphor of it all because like beast being like what you want me to what make a goal like like he can't be bothered he doesn't know what positions or like he's just such a this isn't my thing kind of it just resonated with me, like you know, some. I I now can't help but wonder. Um, I hate mentioning this cursed show, but if Glee was doing a direct reference to either this or the original story with Kurt, <laughs> because they basically recreate this. Sure, sure. Where he basically does the what, like it's hard, and does the kick, and that's how he becomes the kicker. And I'm like. You you said too much, Danny. You've given away too much of your Glee knowledge. Because the what? <laughs> There's an entire uh, story arc dependent on. The, I bet the, there is yeah, <laughs> the gay boy being really good at kicking, not at football, but at kicking. So he becomes the kicker of the team, and n- none of it makes sense, as nothing in that show does. But it's it's there's almost the same kind of like defiant energy that it's he's going to show that he's good at it because all of these straights don't like him. <laughs> right. I'm going to play football and wear pink. They don't love yeah. me for my smarts, but I can kick a ball. Now they love me. Yeah, yeah, I get it. That might be the same episode where he does the single ladies video. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, have the, me... I have the cursed ability that if I've watched a TV show, I can probably remember all the scenes. And <laughs> I've watched 
unfortunately watched that more than once. So I definitely remember all of it. Um, Above, let me turn it back over to you for your pages again. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, they're going to state. Everybody is so excited about uh, Hank McCoy being the best football boy in the world, and uh, we we have a, a television broadcast here. The hero of the hour, new discovery, Henry the Golden Arm. Make note of that. The Golden Arm, uh, McCoy is the midseason replacement, and he's broken every record. Twenty-one touchdowns. We turn off the television and reveal. Another golden arm. The golden arm of who? We'll find out on the next page. Oh, no, we won't. Because we, uh, we're actually going to hang out now with uh, with uh, Hank and his dad. And, uh, you know, his dad's like, hey, this is really great that you were so good at football. Just make sure that you uh, keep your keep your studies going. That's important. Uh, but, oh, wait, hang on. Got a broken shoelace. You just head on home. And uh, he does so. Opens the front door. And boom, surprise party for Hank McCoy. Football the best star, boy. <laughs> the best boy, the best football boy. You'll notice he's in a blue jersey. Foreshadowing. We'll see. Uh, but not in this book. Uh, anyway, so everybody is super duper excited for him. Everybody wants to hear the stories from the football field. And uh, the, the party goes well into the night. And then he falls asleep. And that image of him sleeping, he, he's he got a thick, juicy booty. <laughs> I, I was, I, I did. I wanted him to that. have a bigger bed. I was very, I was like, get, get that man two beds. Just, just push them together, Ma. You could do it. <laughs> also, Beast, boy. Beast's high school mascot, the Bobcats. Now we know. <laughs> now we know. Uh, Daddy, let me turn it over to you for the next section. Um, you mean the section in which this gets real weird real fast, even from for an X-Men issue? <laughs> from the Conquistador! <laughs> so basically, he gets woken up by the Conquistador, who presents himself like he's, like, a cosmic supervillain, but probably just watched, like, Road to El Dorado too many times. <laughs> um, I truly imagine him doing just one of the voices from one of the characters in that the entire time. Like, not even, like, a Spanish accent, just just straight up one of the El Dorado like main characters. Um, I I legitimately thought on that reveal that it was Charles Xavier because <laughs> like when he's in the shadow or not in the shadow when he's fighting the Shadow King or whatever in the astral plane his like psychic armor manifests as this Oh yeah. Shadow, which is kind of in hindsight very appropriate. Yes. <laughs> like, right? Like oh were you dressed as a as a conquistador when you were plucking aurora out of africa <laughs> and bringing her to your school like, I, I really uh, like the I, I really like the I'm, I'm very invested in the fiction now that he just watched movies so now i'm i'm only imagining him going i am the conquistador <laughs> yes like, <laughs> i feel like literally especially since like immediately also, like, Devo is apparently his backup band here. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> I love it. Like, I didn't realize I... that they were all in unitard jumpsuits. <laughs> with, like, the helmets. With with Avalanche's first helmet. <laughs> oh. uh, let, me give a, let me give a touch of backstory. There's not much. This guy's real name is Orlando Furio, which is amazing. That's not his real name. I'm going to let you know that right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is okay no i take that back that is not his given name that is the name he gave himself in his original appearance he has, at, at he has a festival in his original appearance he has a, a sword that can fire electric electric blasts but they later reveal him in a very obscure place to be a mutant 
who's literally never shown up again. And Mike Carey gives us a little bit more context to this guy. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But Danny, go ahead. Um, but yeah, so basically, Hank is like, the reaction is almost literally, my dude, I've never been drunk in my life, but I think I know what it's like now. Um, <laughs> and it's, what I love is how little, like, it's wild to me that they all fit in his room. Um, and I love that. Um, it's because it's his bed is so small. <laughs> yeah. If only he had a real size bed, they wouldn't have succeeded. Um, but also, like, it's completely outrageous. Like, this guy brings basically a nuclear sword to bully a teenager. <laughs> a preposterous sword. It's like two swords and a trident. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah, with a, a with lot. thunder, electricity. Like there's just it's a taser as well, and I'm like, you so, can only stab with that sword, and I respect it. So here's my question, really quickly. In Man Thing number seven, of all places, there's a group of conquistadors who are revealed. We're talking from like the 1500s, who are revealed to still be alive because they drank from the fountain of youth. One of those guys shows up in a Marvel Zombies Return series. Another one is briefly recruited into the 50 State Initiative during like the Civil War, if you remember that. So these conquistadors who lived or who are like eternal, they have been referenced in the comics just a couple of times. There's a group of like old Spanish conquistadors who are still alive. In this issue, this guy, and I don't know how much of it's true, but he claims to be the last surviving member of Ponce de Leon's crew, and he drank from the Fountain of Youth and is immortal. Is he making it up, or is this an original? I think he believes it. I don't think he's making it up. I think it's not true, and I think he believes it. <laughs> this, this is a very closely held delusion. Yeah, if only because, like, if he's really been around and doing stuff for that long, he makes so many mistakes that aren't like only a super genius could like fault him. Like it is truly like not even like super genius ingenuity used here. This is full on like troll high schooler, like using the same part of his brain that said, I want that dude's position on the field. Like that's what defeats this dude. I, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I think he is basically somewhere between method acting and LARPing. And he's like made this technology just to be this character. And while he's this character, he has to like live in it. So. Oh, I think that that's it's possible that that's how it started. I think by the time he's in that room, he a thousand percent believes his bit. He is either an insane. It, he's either an insane ancient mutant who's still alive or he calls himself the conquistador. And <laughs> he also claims to be wielding the sword of, and there's no way I'm going to say this right. Shetekutli. Uh, who is the Aztec god of fire. So his weird, crazy sword, he connects to this like Aztec god as well, which is fascinating. But it doesn't use fire. <laughs> That's another <laughs> reason why I think that he mm -hmm. is completely wrong. It's and either that or he was the dumbest member of Ponce de Leon's crew, which I also <laughs> accept. What we and need to understand is that this entire book was, to was told from his perspective, so <laughs> yes. it makes no sense. This is yes. not this is not Hank's story. This is this is a conquistador story. <laughs> and if it's any consolation, there's no way the conquistador pronounced that name correctly. So you're fine, Chad. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Danny, go ahead. We had to we had to talk about this guy, but yeah, please proceed. Yeah, I mean, like I also love like I think that Mike Carey was going for some of its bullshit, but not necessarily all of it. Or at least even his henchmen believe it. Like, like his henchmen don't believe that he's Ponce de Leon. Like, they clearly are just like, he's psycho, but he's got money, so I don't care. Like, oh my God. The line where Beast goes, Yes. Have you heard of Prozac, the god of sanity? Ever talk to him? <laughs> like, just like, no, that was a, truly just a carry line right there. Like, that one, was just one goon number two name drop Donald Trump. I was like, Oh, I was that, like, Oh, that hasn't aging. aged well at all. And now for a second, I'm like, Imagine if it was Trump inside this suit being the conquistador. Yeah. <laughs> See, like, and also, like, even the even then, when this book when this was written, like that that line alone makes me think that like there is some bullshittery afoot because they wouldn't even when this book was created wouldn't have referenced him without implying fraud. So they at least at least his henchmen don't believe it. It could still be true, and they're just like my dude is clearly crazy, so we assume everything he says is a lie. Um, look, he's freaking me out. He's got this sword. We don't ask questions. Yeah, yeah. No, he's like he gets he, real. He mad. pays on. It's like he pays on time. That's all we care. <laughs> we have health owns, insurance. His dad owns a dealership, so you know. <laughs> it's, it's it's like our uh, our flag means death, where Steed gets everyone to stay because he gives them like basically health insurance and regular pay, and they're like, "This is the dumbest job we've ever done," but like. <laughs> we get like paid every week so i guess <laughs> um and so essentially uh connie over here um has decided that the way to break in is that clearly there's no way that this football player with the big feet because there's no way he knows that this guy's a super genius that the <laughs> that the teenager with the big feet because his father works at this plant is the person who can break in and they let Hank come up with his own plan. I love his little sweater vest, uh, his sweater, the V-neck sweater to do a solo man heist is just the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I really love and respect it. And I want it. In the original story, the reason they got the beast is because they needed a guy that could jump over a wall. That's literally why. But in, in this one, we connect it to the nuclear plant where Beast Dad works. That helps a little bit. <laughs> a mortal conquistador. Can't, defeated by a fence. <laughs> well, imagine getting that script. Like, Bob, could you imagine, like, if you saw the script and you just get the he can't jump the fence? <laughs> the logic. Mike Carey's like, we got to do something with this story. <laughs> I mean, it's a nuclear power plant. You don't know what they got out there, you know? It's <laughs> this electro sword. Yeah. The fence is just lined with uranium. That's actually why yeah. they can't do it. He's like, look, if I take this electric sword in there, we're going to have a meltdown. It's going to be terrible. And then I won't be able to use anything. So you got to go in there with your sweater vest. <sighs> but yeah, so they, they have the, the um, Hank is already mentally starting to, uh, um, home alone them <laughs> with the don't worry about what I'm packing in my bag and for some reason the conquistador who was like yeah the safe house I mean alternate dimension I mean I totally know what I'm doing here um does not watch him pack his bag 
Um, he failed his supervillain 101 classes. Um, and then when they get there, you have that hysterically smug look on Hank's face when he uh, swipes the ID card, which I'm kind of obsessed with. <laughs> um, and also as someone, so the last couple of two pages for my section are actually happen to be two of my favorites because coming from prose, I'm terrible at sound effects. Like I just sit there and I cannot for the life of me come up with them. Um, and it has bip and crunk as two crunk. sound effects. Like the bip is so cute and great. Um, and then just this amazing crunk that is just lettered so perfectly that I have experienced what that door has gone through now. Like, yeah. like crunk. I <laughs> well done, Russell. Like it, it well sounds like the crump, it sounds like he crumbled it like it was aluminum foil. Like it's so good. <laughs> um, I, I love I love that the hand identification sensor is like so small. could fit Little into like the size. palm of, of B's hand. It's just like that was such a good, quiet, comedic moment. Uh and like I know I was talking about like that it sucked that like they had to like truncate like some of the football stuff, but I love how technically this is set up in the in the initial him joining the team. It's why they had to keep the football team. Like it could not be another reason why he was on TV because it's the kick. It's the kick where he accidentally kicked too far. <laughs> and so when you have already seen him kick all the way across the field, you go, yeah, he wrecks that, that door, you know, like with the sheer strength of it. And like, mm -hmm. I, I really like that. Um, uh, the gun, the mantelpiece. If I was a writer who knew words, I could come up with what that uh, was. But uh, they set it up really nicely for me. Uh, Arturo, do you want to take us through the next section? All right. So the crunching of, of that door opens us up to a few pages of just human, human passing beast doing some classic blue furry bouncy beast maneuvers, uh, doing it in converse. Uh, it's some just great action scenes. You see Beast uh, rip open a locker. You see him jump out a window. He's got something under his arm. He's, you know, he's he's making his great escape. Good news. He manages to jump over the fence. That was a good little, we, we, we did manage to get that in there. We got boop, boop, boop. Again, boop, another boop. great special effect. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, the art really works here. Uh, you see, you know, bullets or bouncing around beast and he's just you know so so agile and and nimble despite being this big lumbering beast and he makes it he makes a getaway with uh with the other with goon one and goon two and they go back to the conquistadors very modest lair i'll I say think, i think it's like, an airbnb <laughs> I, well, I, I think it's. I think he rented like a storage garage, like one of those kind of situations. It's pretty bad. Um, and there He's we definitely find... like in the back of another like business. It's like the back of a Forever Twenty One. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Like he's he's actually just renting the little efficiency next to the yeah. It's pretty bad. Um, and but sure enough, he's oh, the, and this is what like a pocket dimension or whatever. But it's not really. It's a 